From a totally different perspective? Ready for provocative conversation? Intriguing stories and inspiration? Then don't touch that dial. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. She'll give you something to talk about all week long. Now, here's Francesca. What if you took the time to really soak it? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca Luca, your host, and I just want you to know that I appreciate you listening to my show. So speak to me. My team and I spend lots of time and energy thinking and preparing for our show about things I care about, and I think you will too. So let me know what you're thinking if you find the show riveting, valuable, horrific, or offensive, or fill in the blank. Just send me an email at info at talkwithfrancesca.com or you can go right to my website at talkwithfrancesca.com and fill out the contact form. You can also visit me on Facebook. I promise I'll get right back to you. And if you miss part of the show, you can go to recent shows on my website. Again, that address is talkwithfrancesca.com and listen there. And I'm also on iTunes. So plenty of places to listen to Talk with Francesca. All right, we've got lots to cover. So we're going to get started. Do you know the average person uses their phone a hundred to two hundred times a day. Yikes. For most of us, our phone is the first thing we see in the morning and the last thing we see when we go to sleep at night. Technology's changed quite a bit in the last few decades, and with it is the way we obviously think and communicate. There's so much good that came out of this technological advance. Innovation, rapid connection, faster information. But there's arguably equally bad things that have come from it. I mean, it seems like we've traded deep connection and engagement to look at the screen. So is the internet giving us freedom or shackling us? So here to talk with us this morning about both sides of this argument is author of Utopia is Creepy, Nicholas Carr. Big welcome to you, Nicholas. Thank you for joining us today on Talk with Francesca. Thanks very much for inviting me. So that's an interesting title. Why did you you name it that? Utopia is creepy. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) It was originally inspired by a lot of promotional videos and other things put out by the technology industry that kind of gave their portrayal of the future in which everything's done for us and we do everything through screens and and to them they presented as this kind of utopian (laughs) utopian vision and i thought gosh i don't that's not a place i want to live yeah Um, no kidding i I began you know thinking that a lot of the technological utopias that that are presented to us are actually creepy (laughs) and so that was that was the initial inspiration for the title so okay so about this utopian culture we're moving towards what is it about it that you think is creepy i mean i've got i wouldn't exactly use the word creepy but well maybe i would actually i mean i think it's kind of like a double-edged sword you know we really we we can't live without it and yet it's kind of hard to live with it too so um, and i i think you know you you pointed out the how connect you know we talk about being connected with the technology and yet when you think about it in order to connect to all these digital streams of information we have to kind of disconnect from the real world and from people around us uh from the natural landscape or even if we're in a city from the city so in a way what we're talking about these days is as much about disconnection as it is about connection and what I think we're disconnecting from are a lot of the sources of 
pleasure and fulfillment and a sense of richness in our lives, the, the real world and the real people around them. And so I think for, for Silicon Valley and a lot of people there who might not be all that comfortable dealing face-to-face with people and socializing and, and mm-hmm. immersing themselves in the real world, doing everything through your phone screen or you know, through software might feel to them like, like an elevation or a, or a utopia. But, but I think it's, for most of us, I think it's really dangerous, actually. Tell us why. I think what we know from psychological studies and from our own experience is that a lot that a lot of the sense of satisfaction and sense of fulfillment that we get from our lives comes from interacting with the physical world around us. We're we're animals yeah. who evolved to live in this world and be a part of this world. And I think even though you know doing things through a screen might be more convenient at times and, and feel faster, that it removes us from the world in which we really belong. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it ultimately can lead to a sense of not only detachment from the world, but a sense of alienation, anxiety, not to mention the various various impacts, some good, some bad, it has on the way we think and the way we communicate. So, this, you know, this change we're going through, and it was only 10 years ago that, that smartphones appeared, and now we're kind of glued to them and dependent on them. So this is a very, very fast change. And I do think there are some severe losses we get when we begin to live our lives through computers, through screens, through software, instead of in direct contact with the physical world around us. You know, there's a lot of conversation about people in sort of the, you know, 40s and the 50s who didn't grow up with the smartphones and, you know, it can be so frustrating and scary and, you know, overwhelming. Um, But I think the ones it's most scary for, and they don't even know it yet, are the the younger generation that really can barely sit at a table and look at someone face to face because they were never taught how to do that. I mean, they didn't grow up that way. I mean, there's, you know, you know, you just think about, I mean, in technology, I mean, I think it is great, but I think it's, it's, you know, it's a double-edged sword and we all know it, but I mean, what's the solution? I mean, it's not like it's going to change anytime soon. That's true. And, you know, nobody's going to massively turn off all these devices or shut down the internet. So I think I think as a society, not just as individuals, but as a society, we need to begin to think about the negative effects mm-hmm. of all of the screen time, both adults and even more so as you as you said, children. And these are these are negatives that and there's a growing body of evidence that show this that distract us and interrupt us so we don't think as deeply as we might think if if we weren't glued to the screen that seem to reduce the richness of personal communications mm-hmm. when we're talking to people face to face because we can't get our mind off the social media and that is always kind of tempting us through the phone and you know there, there's growing evidence of this seems to be particularly true of, of teenagers maybe younger children as as the technology gets pushed down but a sense of isolation and and perhaps anxiety and depression that comes from the sense of isolation mm-hmm. um, so as a society I think we have to start paying attention to the negative effects and begin thinking about you know 
are these devices and and our social media are they designed in a way that is in our best interests or are they designed in a way to seduce us and keep us coming back for more and more and more and go from there to beginning to change i think the way we design them and the way we use them and i don't think it anymore it's just about a matter of personal discipline though that's very important you know, the expectation that you're always connected and you're always checking your phone and your computer is being built into society at a very deep level. It, it influences your education, it influences your job, certainly influences your social life. So certainly we can be individually more aware of what's going on. But I do think at this point, we have to, as a society, begin to change some of the expectations and make new demands about about how these services are supplied and and also how they're used broadly in, in, mm-hmm. in our society. Was there a reason that you studied this? Did it affect, yeah, I, did it affect you in some way, so, some profound yeah, way? I, I, I initially, it was about 10 years ago. In fact, it was 10 years ago this year in 2008 that I, that I published my first real work about this, about raising concerns about our digital lives. And that was in an article in The Atlantic that was titled, Is Google Making Us Stupid? And it came very much out of my own awareness because I'd been a, I'd been a technology writer and a mm-hmm. big user of technology for a long time. But I noticed back then that I was having trouble concentrating. I was having trouble sustaining my attention, doing things that I used to love, read books, read long articles. It was becoming a big struggle for me and I realized that hmm. what was going on is that I thanks to all the time I was spending at, on in front of computers and on the internet I seemed to be training my mind to want to be constantly stimulated constantly bombarded by new bits of information and as a result I seemed to be losing my ability to concentrate and this was a real concern for me because I, I felt something really important was being lost. And so that is what mm-hmm. inspired me to begin looking more broadly at the science and the history and the philosophy of these things. If you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm speaking to Nicholas Carr. He is the author of Utopia is Creepy. And we're talking about social media and smartphones and what it's really doing to us. So, Nick, what was the computer originality intended for as opposed to what it's used for today? In the very beginning, before personal computers, computers were used for mathematical functions, for scientific investigations. A computer was a set of tools, and the tools were different software programs that people used for particular purposes. And and I think that continued into the early days of the personal computer, you know, in the 1980s, 1990s, you would have word processing software, you'd have financial software or spreadsheet software. And so you sat down at a computer when you wanted to get some particular job done, and you ran a piece of software that was a tool to do that, and it was very valuable. It began to change in the 1990s, I think, when the computer itself became a media device, thanks to being hooked up to the World Wide Web. And suddenly, you know, there were still those tools there, but it also became, it merged together with communications, with media, with entertainment, and that's progressed, you know, with the, the arrival of the smartphone, that suddenly we have this little 
very powerful, always connected device that we look to to do pretty much everything. I mean, when you think about all the you know different things you used to use to listen to music or to read something or to get the news, they've all been kind of compressed into this one device and very carefully designed by the companies that make money through these services and through these devices to, to grab our attention all the time. So I think what we've seen is a transformation of the computer from being a set of tools, a kind of Swiss army knife, to use a metaphor, mm -hmm. to being this almost an environment that we kind of live in today. You, you said we flock to the virtual because the real demands are too much of us. What, what do you mean by that? I think that, and again, I think this is pretty clear from a lot of psychological studies we've seen of people, that we're very much drawn to communicating through screens, through through having software do things for us that we used to do ourselves for a couple of reasons. One is that we love the sense of convenience that we get um, simply by, you know, instead of figuring out where you are in the world and where you're going to and figuring out what's the best route, you can just pull out, you know, your phone and launch Google Maps or something and the GPS will tell you how to get there. So so we're kind of we kind of love that sense of convenience and the sense of power we get from doing that. And also there there have been some studies of how we communicate with other people when we do it through, you know, Facebook or through texting, through email. There's a safety involved, a sense of safety, because it removes you from the social risk that's always there when you're talking face-to-face -face with someone. Because when you're talking face-to-face, -face, you can't, you know, you can't stop and think and pause before you respond. So you're always kind of on display, and, and that brings social risk. Mm -hmm. And so, so I think, you know, the real world, dealing with the wor real world, whether it's in a social way or whether it's simply simply doing things, it requires us to come up against challenges uh, and to work through those challenges. Mm -hmm. And and we use the computer, the virtual world, to avoid that. And I think it's self-defeating in the end because another thing we know is that coming up against difficult challenges and overcoming them and building our skills, whatever those skills might be, that is a very big source of the satisfaction and the sense of fulfillment we get in, in out of our lives. Mm -hmm. And so to replace that with convenience and ease and safety, even though it, it feels very compelling, actually drains those that sense of satisfaction from us. Mm -hmm. You know who's probably making out like a bandit with all of this is chiropractors because our head is always down. Seriously, I mean, your head weighs about 14 pounds. Uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm speaking with Nicholas Carr, who is the author of Utopia is Creepy. We do need to take a short break. Nick, hold on here and we will be right back. Coffee no longer has to be a guilty pleasure. You've heard that red wine is good for you because of nature's most potent antioxidant, resveratrol. Vera Roasting Company makes the only coffee infused with it. Each cup of Vera's coffee delivers the same amount of resveratrol as found in a glass of red wine without the alcohol, sulfates, or tannins. Years of medical studies indicate that regular resveratrol in our diets promote cardiovascular health, slows the progression of certain cancers, Alzheimer's disease, and type 2 diabetes. Vera Roasting Coffee won double-blind taste tests against the leading coffee 
coffees. Vera Roasting also offers its delicious heart-healthy coffees with added vitamin D to help ward off the winter blues. You can't get Vera Roasting coffee in stores. You need to go to veraroasting.com. Free and fast shipping is always available. veraroasting.com. Vera like Vera Bradley. Go to veraroasting.com. That's veraroasting.com. Looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? Then you might just want to venture out to Boston this weekend and dine at Terra Mia Ristorante, a true gem among all those rhinestones in Boston's North End. This cozy tutorial with stucco walls and beam ceilings specializes in creative interpretations of Italian classics. Like the cuisines here, the atmosphere is elegant yet understated. Since opening in 1993, Terra Mia Ristorante has aimed to convince diners that there's always more to Italian food than just red sauce. Over the years, the innovative and beloved restaurant has done a great deal of convincing, and best of all, it's reasonably priced. This best-kept secret is worth the trip. Call 617-523-3112 or visit terramiarestaurante.com. It can be easy to lose sight of your dreams and aspirations, especially when they seem so out of reach. Between school, kids, and work, your true desires can get left on the back burner. But you should never settle for less than what you deserve and what you know in your heart of hearts you want to do. Carrie Hummingbird has developed a program that will cast away your fear and self-doubt and inspire you to take charge of your life. But don't take my word for it. Christina Wolf took the program and described it as a trustworthy guide to show you how to transform yourself at the soul level. You will have to dig deep and it won't be easy but then again, nothing worth having is. Life begins at the end of your comfort zone, and your comfort zone ends at the Reinvent Yourself program. So what are you waiting for? Visit www.carriehummingbird.com. You'll be glad you did. Located in Boston's North End holds one of our best-kept secrets, Antico Forno, ranked number nine of the top ten Italian restaurants around the world within the category of being one of the most authentic. With a welcoming family feel, it's hard to argue the experience you have when enjoying dinner at Antico Forno. Best known for their brick oven pizza, their world-class traditional cuisine does not fall far behind. Come enjoy dinner at Antico Forno and feel like part of the family. Open daily from 11.30 a.m. until 10 p.m. Call us today at 617-723-6733 or visit us at AnticoFornoBoston.com. Captain Lord Mansion is the ultimate bed and breakfast experience. It's the only AAA four-diamond bed and breakfast in Kennebunkport. But it's so much more. It's the perfect, elegant, romantic getaway. Relax at their day spa. Be pampered in your room with heated floors, jetted showers and tubs, gas fireplaces, king and queen beds, flat screen TVs, and all the quaintness with all the modern conveniences. Be surrounded by impeccable gardens, waterfalls, fountains, a putting green a charming gift shop, wine cellar, the list goes on and on, including a full three-course breakfast. This is a stay that you will never forget. Engage in our special offers. Call 207-967-3141. 207-967-3141. CaptainLordMansion.com. In Kennebunkport, Maine, memories and elegance await you. All right, we are back. You're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm speaking with Nicholas Carr, who is the author of Utopia is Creepy. And we're talking about social media and smartphones and what it's doing to us that although it gives us freedom, it also is shackling us. So welcome back, Nick. Thank you. So what kind of social media do you have? 
Well, I don't have a Facebook account. I used to a long time ago, but it became clear to me. And, and you sacrifice something, let me tell you, by not having that people right. resent you for not being able to contact right. you through that. But but it became clear to me pretty early on that social media in general and Facebook in particular was very much designed to seduce us to keep coming back for little bits of information. And, it, you know, they, they have behavioral psychologists on staff. They know the triggers of our behavior. So I avoid Facebook. I do have an Instagram account, which I it's a private account that I just use, you know, with my kids and some close friends to exchange photographs. And it's very pleasant. It's very fun. Mm -hmm. I use Twitter of not I use Twitter a little bit, but not very much. So I try to keep I try to keep social media at a distance, not because I don't realize that there are some pleasures involved and benefits involved, but but I really do think that those services are designed to keep us perpetually distracted. And it makes it harder to be contemplative or reflective or just to think deeply about anything. Do you think it's, it's, do you think it's slowing you down in your career? You know, you talked about it being a two-edged sword. Mm. On the one hand, the internet and all the information that's available on it uh, through Google and through other services is very valuable to me as a nonfiction writer because right. I can do lots of research that used to take a lot of time, right. a lot of expense. Right. So it's very valuable when I use it for you know a particular purpose. On the other hand, if I get into this kind of state of mind that I think a lot of us find ourselves in where we're kind of just glued to the screen or thinking about the screen and watching these, this flow of little bits of information and messages go by, then it gets in the way. It gets in the way of kind of concentrating, thinking deeply, being able to do kind of rich analyses and, and so forth. So it's, it's both a big benefit to me and as a source of constant distraction and interruption, it, it, it undermines my ability to get things done. Well, you know, it, it really, I mean, I hear you so much. I mean, I, when I go to bed at night, I shut my phone off. You know, I, I don't want to hear it, but I have to admit, as I'm making my coffee, that is the first thing that goes on. You know, it's, it's, it is, it's dangerous, but at the same time, it's almost at the point where it's dangerous if you're self-employed, you know, you're in the working world, not to have it on because people expect you to to respond and respond quickly. And if you don't respond to someone, you know, like in a couple of hours with a text, it's like, what's going on with you? You know what I mean? And yeah. pe people even take it personally. Oh, yeah. And they, you know, as I said, they <laughs> they resent you for not being easily, not, not being, you know, reachable through various channels and, and, you know, just keeping up with all the different social media is a full-time yeah. job. But also there is this sense, there is this growing expectation in society that any message will be seen and responded to pretty much immediately. And I think that, you know, when I said that this is not just a matter of personal discipline, it's about social expectations and social norms, that's one of the things I'm talking about. If we are, if we do decide to as a society that there are some negative effects here, then we have to begin, all all of us, to begin to change our expectations and change our norms and, and begin to say, you know, it's okay if you're disconnected for a day or two because maybe you have something important to think about. And until we grapple with that, it's going to be harder and harder for people to tune out from the stream of information at all because there is so much social pressure to be constantly connected. I'm surprised there hasn't been a book out there on how to disconnect from 
the internet. You know? <laughs> it would probably be a bestseller. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it, it probably really would be. But you know, and people don't even use like regular phones anymore. You know, right. I mean, <laughs> you know, the only reason I have a regular phone is if I can't find my cell phone, then I call my cell phone with my regular phone. And well, the other reason is too, because the, the you know cable company makes it so that it's not worth it for you not to. It's almost more expensive to just have a TV right. and internet. And if you don't have the cell phone as a package, I mean, excuse me, the regular phone as a package, then you're paying more. So it's, it, it's kind of crazy. Let's talk a little bit about creativity. How does the internet affect our creativity and the way we think? Because you talked a lot about that sort of not paying attention and I'm, you know, an artist and, you know, paint on the side. And when I'm painting, I mean, the phone is absolutely off, off because yeah. how could you possibly get into the flow and you know as a writer you're an artist as well so I'd like to hear your thoughts on that you know there are many ways to be creative and so I think you know one way to be creative isn't you know the 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 artist you know alone with their art or their thoughts or whatever one way to be creative is to exchange information with other people and bounce ideas off other people and brainstorm and stuff. And in, in many cases, the tools that computers and phones give us to connect and to share information quickly, I think they can help that kind of collaborative creativity. But when it comes to personal creativity of, you know, whether it's as an artist or someone who simply wants to to think deeply about difficult questions, difficult challenges, then I think the technology very much gets in the way of of creativity that depends on a high degree of attentiveness, a high degree of concentration. And there, there are lots of forms of creativity, not just artistic, but also kind of problem solving and mm-hmm. so forth. Critical thinking, really yeah. Do, critical thinking that re- really do require us to tune out distractions, to shield ourselves from distractions, and kind of follow our own train of thought uh, for a long period of time. And that is getting harder and harder to do. So what's the solution, Nick? One, the, the start is to become aware that there are negative effects, that there are costs to constant connectivity. And then I think at a personal level, you have to become more disciplined and more able to turn off your phone or to leave your phone at home and go out without it. You know, we've trained ourselves with the assumption that you always have to have your phone with you. And I think that's the first assumption you have to get rid of. So at a personal level, it means more disciplined use of the technology. And then, as I say, at a social level, it means you know, changing some of our expectations, some of our norms of behavior about the use of technology. And then there are various other commercial and and educational changes that I think would have to be made as well. But it begins with awareness. Absolutely. This is funny. So I send my dog on occasion to a little uh, doggy daycare for like two or three days. This woman has all little Bichons, then I have a Bichon as well. So I'm thinking, you know, it might be nice for him to, you know, get out and about and play with some other dogs, right? So I text her this morning to say, you know, when he, I know you're going on vacation. When? Don't hear from her. So then I, you know, it was like maybe a couple hours later, I call her back and she doesn't pick up. And then I get a text from her assistant saying, I'm, I'm manning Pam's phone while she's away. 
And I thought it was interesting. And I, you know, I, I thought that was great. You know, I, I you know, and, and so, I mean, she's because she has a business and obviously she needs to attend her business. She can't just completely blow that off. But that she made a decision. She's going on vacation. She's not bringing her, her cell phone with her. And I mean, let's face it, you can be out of the country and still take calls. So I really kind of admired that. I thought that was, you know, I thought that was a good thing. And I mean, it's like, you know, you, you, you go away and you send an email, you know, one of those automatic emails that I'm going to be out of town for five days or what, you know, I mean, I, do you think that it, social media is ever going to slow down? I think it could. In this certainly lifetime? <laughs> certainly all the momentum is with speeding it up and becoming more distracted and stuff. But I hold out hope. You know, whenever whenever something like social media, Facebook and so forth gets so culturally dominant, you usually get a countercultural movement that begins to question it or or resist it or abandon it. Mm-hmm. So I do I do think, you know, it's it's we're in the midst of it right now, but it is possible that people will start to say, "Hey, why am I why am I letting these services dominate my life so much and and people might start saying no I don't want to do this anymore Mm -hmm. so I think it's still you know it's hard to imagine now Mm -hmm. but I do think it's possible we'll see a reaction against against you know though on the upside you know, my mother is almost 92 years old. And, you know, I wish that she did text. I wish that she did use the internet. You know, we could send her pictures and, you know, I mean, we certainly see her. But, you know, I mean, I think it, it's it's good for older people in some ways, you know. In a lot of ways, I think it is because, you know. It, Keeps them it connected. Allow you, it, yeah. allow you to connect and, you know, share photographs. Um, absolutely, absolutely. You know, do, do, do the kind of things that that you used to be able to do all the time, you know, you get calls and stuff, but seeing photos and videos, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, I certainly don't mean to suggest that everything is bad here. You know, the re one of the reasons we, we use these things so much is because we like to use them so much and, and there are a lot of benefits. So it's really, it's really important to, to see those benefits. Mm-hmm. And, and and start to say, you know, how can I get the benefits without without enslaving myself to the device? Absolutely. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm speaking with Nicholas Carr. He is the author of Utopia is Creepy. We do need to take another short break, so hang tight. Don't jump on that plane. We will be right back. Your body is not the only part of you that needs training. Your brain needs it too. Decision making and focus are one of the most important skills to accomplish your goals in life. Combat brain training is the first targeted neuroplasticity training that actually improves your cognitive ability to observe, decide, and act better and faster. Unlike digital-based programs that research shows create minimal or no real-world benefits, it incorporates portable handheld training tools that utilize all parts of the brain. 100% of the people who have followed the program report significant improvements in performance regardless of starting cognitive baseline. This program is perfect for anyone looking to accelerate their thinking process and really focus more effectively on any task at hand. Don't wait any longer. Go to CombatBrainTraining.com and find out more. 
Captain Lord Mansion is the ultimate bed and breakfast experience. It's the only AAA four-diamond bed and breakfast in Kennebunkport. But it's so much more. It's the perfect, elegant, romantic getaway. Relax at their day spa. Be pampered in your room with heated floors, jetted showers and tubs, gas fireplaces, king and queen beds, flat screen TVs, and all the quaintness with all the modern conveniences. Be surrounded by impeccable gardens, waterfalls, fountains, a putting green a charming gift shop, wine cellar, the list goes on and on, including a full three-course breakfast. This is a stay that you will never forget. Engage in our special offers. Call 207-967-3141. 207-967-3141. CaptainLordMansion.com. In Kennebunkport, Maine, memories and elegance await you. It can be easy to lose sight of your dreams and aspirations, especially when they seem so out of reach. Between school, kids, and work, your true desires can get left on the back burner. But you should never settle for less than what you deserve and what you know in your heart of hearts you want to do. Carrie Hummingbird has developed a program that will cast away your fear and self-doubt and inspire you to take charge of your life. But don't take my word for it. Christina Wolf took the program and described it as a trustworthy guide to show you how to transform yourself at the soul level. You will have to dig deep, and it won't be easy, but then again, nothing worth having is. Life begins at the end of your comfort zone, and your comfort zone ends at the Reinvent Yourself program. So what are you waiting for? Visit www.carriehummingbird.com. You'll be glad you did. Looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? then you might just want to venture out to Boston this weekend and dine at Terra Mia Ristorante, a true gem among all those rhinestones in Boston's North End. This cozy tutoria with stucco walls and beam ceilings specializes in creative interpretations of Italian classics. Like the cuisines here, the atmosphere is elegant yet understated. Since opening in 1993, Terra Mia Ristorante has aimed to convince diners that there's always more to Italian food than just red sauce. Over the years, the innovative and beloved restaurant has done a great deal of convincing, and best of all, it's reasonably priced. This best-kept secret is worth the trip. Call 617-523-3112 or visit terramiarestaurante.com. Tides is beachside dining at its best all year round. Located at the end of the Nahant Causeway, directly on Nahant Beach, the ocean views from the dining room and the pub can't be beat, no matter what the season. Nominated for Best of the North Shore from North Shore Magazine for Best Alfresco Dining, Best Kid-Friendly Restaurant, Best Lobster Dinner, and Best Water View. Why would you go anywhere else? Whether you choose their dining room, a frosty pint at their bar, or a sun-drenched deck on the Hunt Beach, they guarantee you great atmosphere with super food and service. Their menu is full of fresh, high-quality seafood, prime rib, chicken, pasta, and pizza that everyone will love. Check out their drink menu for fun cocktails, 30 ice-cold beers on tap, and their well-rounded wine list with their state-of-the-art tap wines. They feature full-service lottery and kino. Tides is the place to watch any big game. They have over 20 HD TVs. At Tides, they specialize in casual dining with food that's just delicious, not pretentious. Tides is a fantastic restaurant anytime, summer or winter, lunch or dinner, rain or shine. The new Cobblestone Cafe on Hanover Street in Boston brings casual, on-the-go American fare to the North End, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Open daily at 7 a.m., Cobblestone Cafe offers burgers, barbecue, salads, fries, milkshakes, seafood, and the very popular snickerdoodle iced coffee. 
Delivery and catering are also available. Cobblestone Cafe, 227 Hanover Street in Boston. For more information, call 857-263-8057 or visit them online at cobblestonecafene.com. All right, we are back. You are listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm speaking with Nicholas Carr. He is the author of Utopia is Creepy. And we are talking about all the dangers psychologically that can come from social media. So welcome back, Nick. Thanks. So, you know, it's it's you talk in your book, The Shallows, about the intellectual ethic of different things such as the Internet. Explain that a little bit more. Yeah, you know, among all the tools and technologies that human beings have created and used, there's a there's a small but very, very important category that I call intellectual technologies. And that, that means the tools we use to think with, to organize information, to get information, to communicate our thoughts, to express ourselves. And what I believe is that we want to believe that tools are neutral, that it all depends on how we use them. I actually think that that's not right. I, I think every tool is designed to be used in a particular way, and as a result, it has an ethic embedded in it. So if you're talking about intellectual technologies, the tools we use to think with, there's a bias in each of these tools, whether it's a, whether it's a book or a, uh, or a piece of software or a social media, there's a bias that encourages us to think in a particular way, the way that the tool supports, and discourages us from thinking in other ways. So I think if you if you compare, say, the printed book, which used to be the dominant intellectual technology until recently, the printed book kind of encourages us to be focused, to screen out distractions, to be attentive, because just simply the act of reading, whether it's a novel or a nonfiction book, the attack the reading deeply requires a great deal of attentiveness, which is hard for human beings to to do to begin with. Mm -hmm. You compare that to the computer screen as it's been designed, the computer screen doesn't shield us from distractions, it immerses us in distractions. So it... it Elaborate on that a little bit. Say that one more time. The computer screen, Mm -hmm. unlike the printed book, Mm The computer screen isn't designed to shield us from distractions so we we can think attentively. It's designed to immerse us in distractions, to bombard us (laughs) with distractions. So the ethic of the smartphone or the other computers, as far as thinking goes, what it – at its core, it wants us to get as much information as quickly as possible. And this has been the Silicon Valley ethic for a long time. The thought is that the more information you get, the better. And you can understand how someone would assume that. In general, having more information is better. But I think what we know about the way our minds work is that in order to think deeply, you have to moderate the amount of information you're getting. So you have time to uh, conceptualize it and to connect it with the other other things you know and to think critically. I think there's a fundamental tension and maybe even a fundamental conflict between the way our devices, our digital devices, give us information and the way our minds work in translating raw information into true knowledge. I think we're we are in conflict now between those two things. Let's talk a little bit about 
the dangers, different type. I mean, we obviously are talking about some of the dangers, the psychological dangers. But what about, you know, the privacy? What about, you know, the identity theft, that kind of stuff? You know, what, what do you do? You cover that at all in your book? Yeah, to some degree. And, I, you know, I think one thing we know is that people, if you ask them about their concern over privacy, they'll say, yeah, I value privacy and I'm concerned about it. But then when you look at how people actually behave when they're online, I know they don't really think about privacy at all. And they basically will say, will say to a company like Google or Facebook or whatever, you can, you can monitor me all the time as long as you give me free stuff to do. So I think deep within us, there's a, there's this kind of strange disconnect between our concern about privacy and the way we throw our privacy away. Um, And there is, you know, I think for most people, as long as there isn't some kind of intrusion, Mm -hmm. you know, some kind of financial fiasco that comes with somebody getting access to your financial information or stuff, I don't really think most people give privacy more than lip service. Right. Well, because it, in a lot of ways, it disconnects them. Right. And I mean, that's that's the big thing. We're so, certainly more concerned about our social standing and being part of the social flow and the social conversation than we are worried about having time alone and where our thoughts are private and our train of thought is private. So yeah, I think we're we're more social beings than we are private beings. You know who I think it's really scary for with the privacy is the younger kids because they don't get it. They don't realize that what they put out there, you know, the, the pictures of them partying and and yeah. you know the the some of the provocative outfits some of the younger girls are wearing. I mean, you know, if they're if they're when they get out of college and they're looking for a job, you know that HR is going to be looking at that kind of stuff. And then there's no turning that around. Once it's out there, it is out there. I do think teenagers in in particular, but other kids are, are getting smarter about that. And that's why you see the rise, rise of things like Snapchat where stuff disappears, at least theoretically. Um, So there, there, I think there has been, and you're right that this is still a problem, but I think there has been a, I think kids do have a better sense now that, gee, the things I'm throwing out there on Facebook or something are going to be there forever, and I better give a little bit of thought to what, what's going on. Right, right. So, Nick, a question for you about artificial intelligence, such as Sophia, you know, the, uh, the robot. You know, how do you think it'll um, affect the future of technology? This is a, you know, this is a big question that a lot of people assume that computers in the not too distant future will be as smart as human beings and therefore you know at best we'll be able to rely on them for all sorts of things we we do ourselves and at worst they'll kind of take over the world i'm not i'm not so sure about that i mean i think there's still a huge gap between what computers are capable of and computers you know it's worth remembering that they're not conscious they're not self-aware whereas human beings are and that's a huge gap. So I think, you know, I, I think there's no doubt that that what's referred to as artificial intelligence will continue to advance. And in a lot of professions, medical profession, legal profession, we're already seeing software algorithms take over 
some of the analytical mm-hmm. um, processes that that you know used to be in the hands of professionals, and I think that will continue. I don't think that this kind of apocalyptic vision of computers taking over, or computers getting at least as smart as us, and then smarter than us. I don't think there's a lot of evidence that that is going to happen. It doesn't mean it's not possible, but I wouldn't worry about that. I'd worry more about, you know, how how do we divide labor? How do we divide, you know, difficult challenges and difficult tasks between human beings and artificial intelligence in order to ensure not only that we get the benefits of the computers, but that we continue to develop our own rich skills and rich perspectives. You know, the worst, to me, the worst case scenario is we just throw everything over to computers and we become dumber ourselves. Right. I, well, yeah, what was that article that you question whether Google makes us stupid? So what was the verdict? That in many ways it does. That, that on the one hand, it does give yeah. us access yeah. to lots of information that can help in many ways, but it's designed to, I think, intru- designed to make us less capable of being reflective mm-hmm. and attentive right. yeah. and contemplative. And I think until recently, most people would see that see those qualities of mind, contemplativeness and so forth, as being the highest forms of human intelligence. And I think Google and the internet and Facebook and everything, they make those kind of very attentive forms of thinking harder and harder to do. They've never been easy to do, but they're getting harder to do. You know, I think we're in a an age where people almost become really hysterical when their internet breaks down, shuts down, or when their, you know, their GPS puts them in the wrong, you know, like down a one-way street or something, you know, and and I think that's an issue. I mean, people are it's it's creating a lot of anxiety. I mean, I, frankly, I don't know how did we ever get along without a GPS. You know, I mean, but think about it. We did, you know, I mean, and I don't even, and and, you know, I'm not even sure how I'm trying to even remember, like (laughs) even before MapQuest, because I remember my sister was always, you know, ahead of the game. And I remember I was living in Connecticut and she was all excited that she had found this MapQuest and it was a way to get her to my, my new place. And, um, you know, but how did we get? I'm trying to remember. Isn't that crazy? I can't even remember. What if we had to travel somewhere? What did we use? Oh, we used a map. Duh. (laughs) We pulled out a map. That's right. I mean, do you think kids even know how to read a map today? No. (laughs) Probably not. And it shows us how quickly, because you're right, it's, and it's not only getting around with GPS and stuff, it's also... You know, how did we even manage to get together during different times of day when we didn't have a phone with us all the time and texting and email? And yet, you know, people made appointments and they met for lunch and they met doing things. So in in those things, you know, we've become so dependent on the technology that it's pretty amazing because it's so new. But you're right that you can't even imagine how you could survive without it. Well, I mean, listen to my question. I must have sounded like a complete dope, but I mean, I'm thinking about it. I'm like, wait a minute, how how did we even, to think that I had had slipped my mind, thinking, wait a minute, how did we get from point A to point B? (laughs) But, But 
that's how. So what do you think? Do you think all that we have um, gained? Do you think it's, it's, what do you think is the, the best thing that's come out of this digital age? Well, there are a lot of, you know, as I said, speaking personally, I, I think the ability to find information that used to be difficult to come by has been has been very valuable. And I think for a lot of people, the ability to uh, get in touch with others very quickly and to reconnect with people you might have fallen out of touch with is, is all very beneficial to them. So I think there's there's all sorts of benefits that that, of course, yeah. that arise from having stores of information and, and stores of messages and communication available all the time. The problem is that it it becomes overwhelming very, very quickly. We're not very good at regulating our use of these things. So the benefits and the costs, it seems to me, are, are deeply entwined with each other. We mm-hmm. we get we get all this information. And that's a good thing, but we we are unable to stop. <laughs> We're unable to hit the pause button. So we we are unable to back away and to think deeply and to think uh, creatively and conceptually and critically. And I think we see signs of this, you know, in our political life and our social life and so forth now that there is a big cost. Oh, there definitely is. And, you know, businesses, I mean, certainly there's, you know, more jobs in many ways, but a lot of businesses have gone under now, you know. Many moons ago, I don't even know how many years now, but I guess probably 20 years ago, I ran a dating service and it old fashioned, you know, dating service. People would come in and they would fill out a, you know, form. I'd ask them a series of questions and then they'd come in and I'd ask them a whole lot more and I would match them and then I would send via email their match and, and then they would call with their feedback. And, you know, it was really, I will tell you, I really, I enjoyed the business in the end, you know, because I was in the business for a long time and I finally ended up burning out from it. It was just just got to be too much. But, you know, there was a lot of connection in that work, a lot of connection with people. And it was a learning experience that I've taken with me in my life. And I learned so much about people, about the way people think, about what people want, you know, what people don't want. You know, when when people have, you know, too high expectations, I learned that, you know, sometimes it's a defense for not really wanting to get close because maybe they're scared. So the point is, I just learned it was a great stepping off point of, you know, getting into the radio and and really learning, you know, and this is one of the things that I really love about radio too, is that I'm always talking to people and, and learning and growing and, and thinking, but sometimes I have to admit I get lazy and I'll have my intern put together a, a list of questions, you know, if I'm out of time, you know, to potentially ask the guests. Now, I don't necessarily ask all the questions. I mean, I definitely, obviously, as you can see, we're having a conversation here. But when I do that, you know what? I mean, although that some of these interns are great and they, they come up with great questions, I always feel like a little gypped after the interview that I really didn't, I didn't really get the full, the full, you know, I didn't really get what I wanted out of it, which is just really being able to think as we talked about deeply. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of, you know, to, to continue your, you know, the way you put it, our, our phones now are, are kind of all purpose interns that we can hand off all sorts of stuff to. Yeah. Good point. To do yeah. That. It's very easy to do that. But as you say, there's something you don't feel as fulfilled when you haven't done it yourself. 
But, you know, by the same token, I and, and, you know, we could go back and forth all day long. But, you know, if there's I'm not sure you're in Colorado. Was that right? I'm in Virginia. Oh, moment. you're in Virginia. Oh, OK. I'm sorry. I don't know why I thought you were in Colorado. But anyway, I you know. Oh, OK. So if there's a major snowstorm and I can't get to the radio station to record, you know, I've got like a handy dandy little setup right in my own home. You know, I got an audio interface, plug it into my computer. I've got my microphone. I've got my cell phone. I've got it all happening. And, you know, I could be in my jammies on a Saturday morning. Right. And, (laughs) and, um, you know, no one would know. And, you know, I mean, so it's just funny. It's thinking, how did, how did they do that way back when, when you had to go to the radio station? station every single time you recorded, you know, and had to be there, you know, for a live show. And, you know, what happened? What happened if there was, you know, like the blizzard of 78? You know, what happened then? You know, back about, I guess it's three years ago now, three winters ago, you know, Boston was just blasted with snowstorm after snowstorm. And that's what made me decide I'm getting a setup in my home. You know, it's just like, I just... I felt like I had to, and, I, and I'm grateful, you know, but then, you know, on the same token, then you get lazy, like, eh, I don't feel like going in. I think I'm just going to do it from here, you know? <laughs> so, right. you know, there's never, there's never, I think it can make us lazy in some ways. Yeah. I, I mean, as you, as you point out, there's great value in having these tools that empowers you in many ways. And, you know, musicians have new recording tools and stuff and, but yeah, the the downside is that you can become so dependent on the tools that that you begin to sacrifice some of the quality of your work, or or at least some of the quality of your talent, because you're not challenging yourself enough. And so, it's it's you know striking the right balance and knowing knowing what the tool is good for and what it's not good for. So here, my intern does have a question for you um, that she's flashing in front of me. What are your thoughts on the potential loss of net neutrality? And if we do lose net neutrality, how do you think that will affect the progression of this digital age? Good for you, Mary Ellis. It's a good, great, great question. Yeah. I mean, that it's a great question. And, you know, net neutrality means that, that, that the companies who supply us with connections to the internet treat all information equally, all data equally, so they don't begin to give Netflix priority, but the individual's blog or something gets shut out. And and so I think there's a danger in undermining net neutrality. On the other hand, and on the other hand, if you look back at the history of radio, the history of TV, there's always this tension between who has access to the airwaves, who has, that, who has access to the broadcast. So it doesn't surprise me that we're in this sort of tug of war between open access um, and net neutrality. And I'm not necessarily, you know, there are a lot of people who think, oh, any kind of reduction in neutrality is going to be a disaster. I'm not entirely convinced about that because I think even if you if you look at what's happened under the under a regime of neutrality, you have huge companies like like the Googles and Facebooks and Apples and Amazons of the world that have come to dominate the internet. So it's not as though we're coming from this incredibly democratic situation. We're, we've we've seen a small number of very large companies come to dominate the digital platforms and in, in the net. So it's a very it's a very complex issue, but 
I actually am am hopeful that in the long run, through through regulation and, and, and laws and, and as well as through commercial interests and stuff, we may ultimately end up in a, in a better place than we are today. So my intern wants to know if we're addicted to the internet. And if so, how do you end, how, how are we going to end that addiction? <laughs> An addiction is a sickness that you just can't stop, though. Right? Yeah, I, do, I don't think we're addicted to it the way, say, people are, you know, addicted to opioids or right. alcohol or, or whatever. Yeah. But I do think it our behavior around the Internet and around social media definitely rises to the level of compulsion. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and I, think we, oh, yeah. I think we know that, you know— in a very deep, instinctive way, human beings want to know everything that's going on around them, and particularly if, if that information has a social value or social content. So these, these services, particularly social media, but the Internet in general, tap into these primordial mm. information gathering instincts mm-hmm. and social status instincts, mm-hmm. and, and there are other – there's also a kind of gambling dynamic where every time you refresh a screen you may see some, you may realize you got a like on one of your posts or on your Instagram photo and so there's even a kind of that the kind of underpinnings of a mm. gambling addiction that keeps us refreshing screens all the time because maybe there's something new and interesting and beneficial to us so it definitely taps into some deep deep instincts and that's why we so many people are so compulsive. <laughs> I think, you know what, I think you're right. I had interviewed a woman uh, last week about uh, female friendships. And one of the, the really interesting things about the interview was that, that women don't want to feel left out you know, with it when they're with like a group of friends. It is very, very, very important. And if you have a group of friends, unless you all decide you're not going to be on Facebook, you know, <laughs> I mean, and I'm not talking, you know, in, in my age group necessarily, but, you know, in the, the 20s or even the 30s, whatever, I think that it's it's a harder thing. I mean, can you imagine like someone 25 years old saying to their friends, I'm not going to be on, well, actually, I don't know the kids so much are that interested in Facebook anymore. Supposedly, it's it's like for the older generation. Yeah. Yeah. So they use it more to connect yeah. with their parents. So, yeah. But there's, but you know, but th- that doesn't mean you know. There's Facebook. There's Instagram. There's Snapchat. There's mm-hmm. Twitter. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Pinterest. It, it's like, if you know that you know people you know are active on all these things, and you don't want to feel left out because nobody wants to feel left out, then it becomes then it turns into this compulsion that you have to keep checking, you have to keep monitoring everything. And it begins to eat up, you know, a good deal of your life. Right? Mm-hmm. I hate to put you in a box. We have just 60 seconds left. Last question. What is digital sharecropping and what is it affect its effects? <laughs> Can <laughs> you do it in 60 seconds? <laughs> yes. If you think about how companies like Google and Facebook and, and the rest make their money, it's off of stuff that we create. The the, the pictures we put up, the, the messages we send out. So... There's an analogy to the sharecropping system after the Civil War where, you know, landowners got sharecroppers to to grow all the crops, and then the landowners ended up making most of the money out of the crops. And I think there's something similar going on on the Internet where we're creating all the stuff of value, but it's companies like Google and Facebook that make all the money off of, of our creations, and we get very, very little. 
Okay. All right. Nicholas Carr, author of Utopia is Creepy. Thanks so much for being on Talk with Francesca today. It's been such great information. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Francesca. Okay. You take care. All right. Time to wrap things up. We've got to say goodbye. Hope you enjoyed the show. I thought it was really interesting. Hope you did too. If you missed the show, you can listen. You can go to my website and go to recent shows. Download it there. You can also listen to the show on iTunes. See you next week. Same time, same place. Make it a great week. If you like the show, please share it with your friends.